I think roller derby is a hopeful thing. He earned enough money from selling plants that he paid off the mortgage on his house. People always want to know, uh, you know, is that a lie or is that the truth? I completely disassembled this Triumph TR6. I wish I could have been a professional woman soccer player. I'm Martha Woodruff, and this is The Spark, an exploration of interesting people doing interesting things. Former U.S. and Virginia poet laureate Rita Dove has received buckets of accolades, including the 2012 National Medal of the Arts and the 1996 Humanities Medal. Although she is best known as a poet, her 10th collection just came out, Ms. Dove has also published an essay collection, a play, a volume of short stories, and a novel. And since, ta-da, she's to be WMRA's December Books and Brews author, I recently phoned Rita Dove up for a Sparky and Chat. And I've decided to start this, my very last spark, with Rita Dove reading a poem from her 1987 Pulitzer Prize-winning collection, Thomas and Beulah, and then talking a little about how that particular poem came into being. And by the way, just so you know, a taterbug is a mandolin from the early part of the last century. Jiving. Heading north, straw hat cocked on the back of his head, tight curls gleaming with brilliantine. He didn't stop until the nights of chaw and river bright had retreated somehow into another's life. He landed in Akron, Ohio, 1921, on the dingy beach of a man-made lake. Since what he'd been through, he was always jiving, gold hoop from the right ear jiggling and a glass stud bright blue in his left. The young ladies saying, he sure plays that tater bug like the devil, sighing their sighs and dimpling. Well, this poem is part of, of, of a series of poems in, in Thomas and Beulah, and in this poem, particular poem, Thomas is coming north from Tennessee after losing his best friend with whom he had a duo, and uh, he loses his friend uh, in, a, in an accident on the, on the Mississippi. And so he's grieving, but at the same time, he's taken up his friend's mandolin and kind of a certain way taken up his life, and so he's starting to do his own little act and play his mandolin. I think of this poem as a, as a kind of a the essence of what I would call the happy side of blues, which is that you you laugh to keep from crying. And so he is playing and he's jiving and he's playing this mandolin. And what I really wanted to do in the poem was to get the lightness of a mandolin's plucking. Mm-hmm. So it's in couplets and two line stanzas so that you can move fast through it. It's a pretty skinny poem. And some of the lines are even like one word lines, like 1921 is on the line all by itself. But I did try to choose the words so that they skipped. Part of that was things like, you know, tight curls gleaming with brilliantine. He didn't stop, you know, just yeah. keep going. And uh, when we get to the point, since what he's been through, he was always jiving gold hoop from the right ear jiggling, which is a strange construction. And I remember thinking a lot about that because normally you would say gold hoop jiggling from the right ear and a glass stud in his left, you know, and a Uh bright blue glass stud in his left. But that's hard to say. You know, it's hard to say. It slows you down to say bright blue glass stud in his left or jiggling from the right ear. So I thought, let's just 
do it like they would do it in a song. I mean, sometimes they just change words, and that's why I decided to go gold hoop from the right ear jiggling and a glass stud bright blue in his left. So it gives us a kind of a lift, and then we kind of plop back down. I I just had I had a lot of fun writing this poem. Once it got started, I could almost hear the melody, and I let the sound of the words kind of cascade us through. When I got to the ending, I remember working very hard thinking about what what do you do if you sigh your sighs? We've had, you know, smiles, so bleh. <laughs> just smile. And then I thought, well, of course, what did girls do in 1921 when they wanted to flirt? They would do a smile that would show off some aspect of themselves, and dimples kind of popped up, and there they were. Listening to you talk, it sounds to me as though writing poetry is almost a physical process for you. It is a physical process. I mean, even talking about it, you can't yeah. see me, but I'm gesticulating. Yes. <laughs> All this kind of stuff. You see, to me, I feel that when someone reads a poem, what the poet hopes is that they are going to almost breathe in sync with the way the emotion would have um, initiated, you know, breathing in response, the physical responses in them. I read a poem back to myself aloud to see if, in fact, the end of the line, the pause is as long as it should be. Should they take a breath at that line, or, or am I going to make them go on because I want, I want them to arrive at the final image breathless? Mm-hmm. The difference between arriving breathless or arriving calmly. That's one of the few things the poet has going for you, the sound. The sound and the punctuation, which then orchestrates the way that sound is delivered. I adore the sounds of language and the idea of a, of a captured moment. I love the fact that a poem will lift you out of your day-to-day trot for you know, that moment, that bubble of time, and that perhaps you can carry a little bit of of that sensation with you as you go through the day. I am a white woman, and I'm 69, and I'm a retired babe. And, And you're a woman of color and a babe, and I am assuming that has in some way informed your experience. Do you have any comments about that? Well, I think that, you know, as a writer, of course, who I am, who who I have been, and, and how I see myself informs the writing. I do think that, uh, first of all, thank you for the compliment about being a babe. When I was growing up, when I was, uh, uh, you know, as a child, I was kind of uh, undistinguished and, in fact, grew up very shy and looking at all the other babes and wishing I could be like that, but not thinking I could ever be like that in, in a million years. And I was actually kind of relieved when I was a um, senior, and I became a presidential scholar, and I went to Washington, went to the White House and everything to meet the president, but it happened to fall during the week when our senior prom was. And I was uh, relieved that I didn't have to be ashamed that I had no date to the prom. Uh, so, you know, I, so it's, it's kind of interesting because all the way through high school, I think I was just really the mouse in the corner. I, I became a majorette to try to push myself out of my shyness. But, but interestingly enough, I mean, I was a majorette and I was, but I was also a nerd. So 
you know, I was never in that popular group. And then I got to college, and every things changed. I began to understand that I was putting myself into that category for many years, and you know, metabolisms change, and suddenly <laughs> I was becoming a babe, and I was like, wow, this is kind of neat. But, but what I'm saying is I think inside I've always been that shy little 10-year-old who nobody noticed. And I think that all of us, even being, no matter what kind of um, popularity you might enjoy or what kind of impression we've made on others, there's always a part of us that we say, oh, if only they could see that. They, they would think differently. So I've, I think I've always operated out of that sense of the, the part of our soul in which we feel very fragile. You'll find more of my conversation with poet Rita Dove, as well as some pictures and links, on the Spark page at WMRA.org.